It's amazing to see how much cannabis extraction has evolved in such a short time. I mean, if you looked at cannabis on a historical timeline, there would be flowers and hash for millennia. And then right at the end of the timeline, suddenly humans start using alcohol, butane, and carbon dioxide, and even hair straighteners to remove the essential oils of the cannabis plant. The beginning of normalization has created a surging demand for all sorts of extracts, including dab oil, inputs to make edibles, and full extract cannabis oil, or FICO. Each of these processes demand the right technology employed by a knowledgeable technician. If you enjoy hearing smart discussions that dive deep into cannabis health, business, and technique, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. Every week, you'll receive a new podcast episode delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and often videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the newsletter to make sure you don't miss a single episode. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I am your host, Shango Lose. My guest today is A.C. Braddock. AC is CEO of Eden Labs, one of the original leaders of cannabis extraction technology, reaching all the way back to the early days of medical in California. With normalization, Eden has become possibly the most prominent extraction technology company in the U.S. and one of the top 10 fastest growing women-led companies in Seattle, Washington. AC not only leads Eden, but she's a thought leader industry-wide as well, and often travels the world to speak at international cannabis conferences. She's a founding supporter of the Cannabis Women's Alliance, Women Grow, and Women of Weed. She's also a board member of the NCIA, the NCIA's Federal Policy Council, and the Cannabis Alliance. Today, we're going to talk with AC about the rise of CO2 extraction technology and the importance of kindness in cannabis culture. Welcome to the show, AC. Thanks, Shango. I'm so delighted to be here. So I'm excited to be talking about Eden and your experience with extraction for a while. You know, Eden was in the botanical extraction business well before cannabis. What kinds of other extractions were you designing prior to getting into cannabis? Well, the founder of the of the company, Fritz Chest, um, began uh, doing extractions in about 1994. Um, but actually, cannabis was always a part of that process. Um, he did a lot of different kinds of botanicals. Um, but, um, you know, for instance, he was the first, one of the first, um, to advertise in high times for a, um, an extraction system in I think, 94 or 95. And that was a small ethanol system. And then he put a large system in, uh, San Francisco in, uh, 1996, when proposition 215 passed. So, some of the other botanicals, there's, there's a wide array. Um, there's biofuels, nutraceuticals, um, herbs for um, acupuncturists, herbalists. Actually, the, the breadth of extraction knowledge that he has across multiple botanical structures and industries is, is really amazing. You know, it surprises me. You know, I thought I knew um, um, your, uh, you know, Eden Labs background in cannabis, but I had no idea that Fritz had gotten started so early in the San Francisco scene. That's actually when I was living down there. Um, <laughs> he he obviously has had an affinity for cannabis medicine a long time. Um, did you did you find that you were you're well positioned because of that experience when the first uh, you know in when Washington and Colorado first broke out? He he. He, Fritz was probably like, finally, I get a chance to apply my technology in, in, in functioning markets. Yeah, I mean, 
you know, as he said back in the mid nineties, you know, if it wasn't for California, eating labs would be a part-time job. Mm. So <laughs> it would be a hobby. Um, so yeah, he has, he's been doing this quite a while and it definitely was a, a boon to Eden as well as the entire industry to have someone with his um, background and experience when those markets went live um, in, you know, later on for uh, Colorado and in Washington in, in uh, 2009. So if, if, if he was beginning, you know, uh, like you said, if it weren't for California, it'd be a part-time job. And I know that your extractors are used across other industries for different botanicals. Um, at what point did, um, did the threshold kind of get passed where, uh, you went, it went from just being, you know, um, you know, Fritz and one or two other people to, oh gosh, you know, um, it looks like we need to, we need to start hiring people because the cannabis part of our business is, is growing so fast yeah that tipping point for especially for cannabis was about 2009 um, and then really kicked in in 2010 Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and and so I can imagine at that same time, you know, your early sales were to medical cannabis companies in Washington and Colorado and in in California, which had, you'd already been selling to. But, you know, uh, those, a lot of those new companies wanted to use your technology, but they didn't have access to traditional financing yet. And while, you know, while the Eden machines are, you know, a, a, uh, are worth the money, they're also not something that a lot of these new companies, you know, had in financing right away. I can imagine that you had to do some pretty creative financing to help these companies get the ball rolling, also making sure that Eden was first to market in this groundbreaking industry. Yes, those those early years were very challenging um, for people to be able to get in to you know get equipment that would really help them be successful. Um, so there was definitely a lot of creativity, and, and there still is. I mean, it, it's still an issue, obviously, um, with you know not having um, access to the federal banking system. Um, in order, and, and, you know, companies can't get lines of credit, you know, you have to completely rely on uh, investors. And, you know, often that can be problematic, um, having those two worlds come together. So it has been challenging and it, and it still is, but it's certainly a lot better. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. And also, you know, in the early days of, of medical, um, it was it was such a legal gray area that it was a lot harder to find, you know, even angel investment capital. And since and since we're all pretty, well, at least fairly confident that uh, cannabis is here to stay, it's a lot easier to get uh, individual investment now than it was in those in those early days. You know, the, uh, you know, in addition to the, the early companies not necessarily having the financing for such a, you know, fine product as the extractors, you know, a, a lot of the owner operators didn't have proper science backgrounds. How do you make up for operator error as they, as they run your machines? You know, a, a poor mach- a poor operator getting poor results looks bad for Eden, not because the machine is doing anything wrong, but because the quality of what's coming out of the machine and then is going for sale or to a patient or whatever, you know, it might not be up to quality. And then they say, oh, it was run on an Eden machine when, when actually the machine was fine, but the operator is the one who doesn't have the experience. What do you do as a company to, to help soften uh, the likelihood of that? Well, several different things, but 
um, the foundation of all of that actually is why um, Fritz started engineering uh, CO2 systems to begin with. Um, he was he was doing all kinds of different botanicals, as as we mentioned earlier. One of the one of the things that he had a hard time extracting with ethanol because he started with ethanol um, systems uh, was kava kava, and it would not extract well in ethanol. So I was like, all right, well, I need to I need to try some temperature and pressure. And he started looking around at different um, CO two extraction systems. Um, there were only a couple of companies at the time, and they were huge um, international companies and. Um, the systems were very expensive. They were fully automated. They were fussy. Um, and of course, none of these companies had any idea about, you know, extracting heavily resinous materials. So he said, all right, well, I don't want a system like that. I just want something that's simple to operate that will not break down that, um, you know, I can, I can run comfortably and so that's what he designed. And, you know, 22 years later, the systems, have, having been based on that, are very easy to operate. And they are extremely reliable. And <laughs> and we, as a company, um, you know, obviously we're extremely vested in this industry. And we really want all of our um, people to be successful. So we have an internal training for those people, we have um, techs that they can call to help them with things. Um, we have a really good, obviously, a network, having been in the industry this many years, that we share information with a lot of our clients and we um, uh, pass some of that stuff on if they, if they are agreeable to, to do that. Obviously, some of the technology or the protocols that they come up with are their IP. We don't share that, but... Um, Systems are, they're designed to help people, people be successful. And we've gone through many different reiterations of the system at this point. And um, we just released a new version this last year, and it's awesome. I can imagine, especially in the early days when turnover for lab staff was, you know, pretty consistent, that there there must have been some frustration from your from your training department because just as you got a company's lab uh, staff trained up and they could use the machine correctly, you know, they were moving on for one reason or another, and you're yeah. like, oh man, we got to start all over again. Um, I can imagine that, you know, as far as um, you know, startup and moving in a new industry, that must have been one of the early frustrations. Yeah, and what way we've dealt with that is, is we um, we train um, the operators on this system that they get, and then we train up to four people at a time from any given company. And part of their warranty is hooked into the fact that a certified, trained person is running that system. And if they have somebody else do it, that avoids their warranty. So it it gives some impetus to have always have an operator who has been trained and knows what they're doing and that has worked very well for everyone. That's actually a really great strategy to to tie having a properly trained person to the warranty itself. Um, you know, in the early days, you know, uh, I, I've I've seen all sorts of different people in different labs running your machines. I'm like, do they know what they're doing? And uh, <laughs> <laughs> there has been a lot of that, and there, you know, and it has, and actually, the industry has been, in my opinion, been held back quite a bit by a lack of a real understanding of extraction and. I can tell you, Shango, I know you mentioned earlier about all the traveling that I do, and that's the primary reason is just 
trying to get in front of people to talk about extraction and why extraction is so important to this moving this industry forward, especially on legalization, because it's hard to legalize on medical without a clean, pure product. So um, that's one of the reasons why um, when I came in as CEO, I, I uh, wanted to brand the company as primarily as uh, CO2 and ethanol. We, we make all kinds of different systems using all sorts of different solvents, but this industry needed an easy path. And it's hard to argue with those two extraction methodologies. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, and I want to go ahead and uh, uh, compare CO2 to BHO, but let's do that after the first break here. We are sure. going to take a first break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is AC Braddock, CEO of Eden Labs. Now that the health benefits of terpenes have become well-known in the cannabis industry, people everywhere are looking for the purest terpenes without adulterants. The problem with most terpene providers is that they're not sourced naturally and instead are made as a byproduct of refining petroleum, and that's so sketchy. The terpenes sold by True Terpenes are entirely different. They are certified organic, non-GMO, and food grade. That means that they are extracted from real plant sources. There are no solvents of any kind. They are distilled only with steam. That's right, only steam. In fact, terpenes from True Terpenes are so pure that you can eat them. Not only that, but you can stack them with better results too. What I mean is, other companies' terpenes have got a few percent of impurities, and when you stack those terpenes to make your blend, you're adding a variety of impurities that degrade your final product. True terpenes also have strain-specific terpenes for a wide range of cannabis strains like Durban Poison, Sunset Sherbet, and Granddaddy Purple. True Terpenes has robust and supportive customer service, so your questions will get answered fast and efficiently. If you've shopped for Terps before, you know how rare that is. So whether you want to cup your hands to smell some beta-caryophylline to calm down after getting too high, or if you want to dab some pinene so your lungs feel fabulous and your mind feels liberated, True Terpenes will provide you with a truly natural experience. If you are a cannabis product developer, these are the terps you want to add to your oil or edible or capsule or whatever. True terpenes are simply the best your money can buy. Don't try and make a premium product with substandard terps. Choose true terpenes for a top shelf experience. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash true terpenes to find out more or click on the link in this week's newsletter. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shangolos. And our guest this week is AC Braddock, CEO of Eden Labs. So, you know, during the, the at the end of the last set, uh, AC, you were saying how one of the things that you wanted to do as you came in as CEO was to start to play this evangelist role for extraction and for easy to use CO2 uh, machines. And, you know, a lot of people uh, have been, you know, in the early days, they were, to, they were making BHO, butane hash oil. And in the early, early days, people were blasting outside, which of course was really dangerous. But one of the things that a lot of people really like about CO2 is that um, there is no residue left in the product and it's not a uh, combustible hydrocarbon, um, which a lot of people are concerned about, you know, getting any residue out of it because it can be a carcinogen. So, you know, what, what, as part, as part as your, of your evangelist um, presentation to people, what do you say when you're comparing CO2 to BHO and, and why CO2 is such a great choice for folks? Well, number one, the marketability, um, you know, even in the supplements industry, um, many years ago, they started moving over to CO2 from hexane, 
and they used it as a marketing tool in their packaging. And I think there's a there's a movement in this country for uh, sustainable, environmentally friendly, um, organic products. So, and it's not just cannabis; it's it's all industries because most of our our food um, products are currently extracted with hexane, which is very toxic. Um, and in Europe, has been um, banned. Um, anything that's usually made with a light hydrocarbon um, from many countries in in, uh, in Europe are not allowed to be sold in Europe, but they are allowed to be sold in the U.S. So we have a little bit of a a problem with you know what what we get is human consumables for many different things, and that includes pesticides and in, in, in our foodstuffs. But in cannabis, you know, we have this spotlight on us about um, the kind of products that we make and how they're grown, which is good, but we want to shine that light across multiple industries. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, as I said earlier, uh, Eden makes all kinds of different systems and including butane and propane systems. Um, the, re- the reason why we started, again, we started focusing on this is because, as you said, in the early days, there were so many um, non-experts utilizing butane because it was inexpensive to get into, and there were horrific accidents, and it was really an Achilles heel for the industry. The media was having a field day with it, and we needed an alternative. But these days, there are many companies who make really good butane and propane products, it just requires um, time to do the post-processing and an understanding of what you're dealing with. One of the main problems with any solvent, really, um, but especially you know butane or propane, is it goes through uh, pipelines and you get what they call "quote unquote" mystery oil in there, which is basically pipeline lubricants. So as long as companies are being responsible and sourcing really clean solvents and then um, purging it and handling the the, the, um, the oils properly um, it's it's a viable um, production method and especially since different kinds of solvents produce different kinds of products so when we deal with people we try and find out okay what are you trying to make are you trying to make an edible are you trying to make shatter are you trying to do vape pens because different methodologies are better for different product lines. I think that's a really insightful point that you mentioned about, you know, the 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 cleanliness of BHO or PHO or what have you. Um it got a bad reputation in the early days, but it wasn't um, because of the BHO itself, it's because was because the state of the industry was so young yeah. that the, the 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 proper techniques and the education to remove the residual solvents just didn't exist in the industry yet, and you had a lot of um, uh, non science, inexperienced people doing the post processing, and then it would go out and and you know you you could taste it or it would snap on the nail or whatever, mm-hmm. and and people could tell that there was still residual BHO. But um, the point where the industry is now um, through through education and hiring more scientific uh, lab staffs um, to a more or less BHO and, and other light hydrocarbons are going to be cleaner than they ever were in the early days of medical. And a lot of that, um, that fear, it's probably time for that to go away. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, but it also still falls back on the mission and focus of whatever the company is, too. I mean, a lot of the people who really who understand this is a long-term play. It is not a short-term play. This is not about making a bunch of money quickly. It just isn't. I mean, anybody that's in this industry it knows that at this point. So you're either going to self-regulate and be an example for the rest of the industry, or you're going to be in it for a money grab. And it's pretty easy to pick out who those companies are. The problem is the general public can't differentiate. Yeah, and there's there's not uh, testing for that that's mandatory in the states either. So you have to, you know, you have to self educate and then find uh, some sort of brand that you like and then stick with that brand loyalty, and um, that that makes for a really exclusive market. Yeah, it does. It it definitely hinders the market, and you know, and I it's one of the reasons why I appreciate you know you're inviting me on this on this talk today too because uh, the more we can help educate each other and the general public and come to some consensus on the messaging that we're going to be bringing um, as recreational continues hopefully to um, expand. Um, we are going to, we don't want to get into a scenario where the culture of this industry flips and we're doing same old, same old business. And, you know, we've got Monsanto type companies and, you know, it's just there's so much potential for the cannabis industry to change our food consumption, uh, civil rights. You know, there's just so many different things that is that are what keep so many of these uh, companies. The tenacity um, comes from the passion. Well, I think, you know, I, I totally agree with you. And I think that a lot of us who used to work in the metal, in medical industry actually have that fear and we, and we watch it because, yeah. you know, the cannabis, the plant itself, um, you know, it, it teaches, right? And and the yep. people who are who tend to be um, attracted to cannabis and whole plant medicine, of which I know you're also a big advocate for, like I am, um, you know, we saw the kinds of people who used to be attracted to the medical industry. And as states become recreational and licensed and new forms of investment come in and the players change out, um, you know, our entire industry is at risk to becoming um, um, more of a commodity and lose a lot of that, you know, original spirit that I think you're talking about. And and there's got to be enough good players in the industry who want to keep the quality high, who want to try to, you know, stay as close to a whole plant as we can, and to continue to think about the health of the consumers and the patients. And, and, and it takes people like you evangelizing that and to to remind people of that. Yes, absolutely. And um, there are some really amazing companies uh, in this industry and there's some companies that aren't so much. And um, if we can help bring them in, but you know, you touched on it. It's, it's the investors and other business people who are looking at this as a, a green rush um, who come in and, expect big numbers and, and take equity out of small businesses and who are already under tremendous amount of pressure to even just stay in business um, with these people who are just talking about numbers to them and having that flavor start taking over what we're doing is uh, it's, it's not, it's not where we want to go. Yeah, and it's disheartening, that's for sure. Yes. 
So before we go to the second commercial, I want to talk a little bit about um, about flavor of CO2. Um, you know, I, uh, several years ago, I was CEO of a um, an extraction company, and we used Eden machines. And as CEO and as our evangelist, one of the things that I often had to work to um, convince people about CO2 was that that it had flavor and it could it could produce really nice dabs compared to BHO. And you know, part of what my shtick was when I talked to people was, you know, in the early days, people were not really sure in the lab how to make a fine, tasty dab oil because they weren't familiar with the machines yet and the post-processing. And so they were just cooking the terps off. And, and, and it, wasn't the, the, it wasn't the issue of CO2. It was the issue of inexperienced people using CO2. But even to, to, to today, as the technology has gotten better and as laboratory teams have gotten better, there's still still this remaining myth of that like oh you know BHO is always going to taste the best and CO2 is is not going to taste very good but I know because you know I I I adore CO2 dabs I know the taste is there what do you say when people kind of slough off CO2 and they say oh it it doesn't have the flavor cuz I'm sure you get this pretty often yourself Well yeah we've been getting that for you know a while um but I think the the stem of it is from where we are. We're in generally where we are in the industry. So the way I look at it is, we are still in bathtub gin mentality about cannabis oil. So a lot of people only care about the amount of THC um, and it being inexpensive. So that lends itself to trying to produce a product with as much THC in it as possible. So the early and, you know, early on, um, CO2 was really trying to compete with um, the CO2 operators were trying to compete with trying to get as much THC in their oil as possible. So they overprocessed it. They would take it out of the system. They would post-process it and post-process it and to continue, continue to, to concentrate it until the THC levels were high. But of course, then you've vaporized off all of the light, light essential oils, um, or, which are all the terpenes. So for about five years, um, actually I've been trying to get our clients because our systems can fractionate off terps separately to, and you know, then of course what they were doing is they were taking all that post-process, post-process oil, and then trying, just trying to put it into a, a smokable product. But what they really should have been doing is just do an extraction of the terpenes, which come off really quickly because they're a lot of essential oils. They come off in like 15 to 45 minutes. Squirt that out, set it aside, continue to run, take the lipids and waxes out of that bulk oil and reintroduce the terpenes so you have a whole plant extraction. You don't have to use additives um, for fluidity um, in the pens or and two at this point we have multiple clients who are doing a one process where they just run subcritical and and that is starting to happen because the public especially I think in the northwest and in California and some areas where all the pot nerds quote unquote <laughs> which we are um aren't concerned with THC having high levels of THC. We want a full profile cannabinoid and terpene profile. We want 
you know, one of the things that um, I'm really seeing, especially here in Washington, is very high CBD um, strains utilized with very low THC. And those are the connoisseur products, and they're just starting to catch on. And we're going to see more and more of that because the high THC market is extremely limited, but the full cannabinoid profile, full terpene entourage effect, that is a massive market. Yeah, and certainly one that's going to keep on growing. We're going to go ahead and take our second and last break. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and uh, my guest today is AC Braddock, CEO of Eden Labs. Using pesticides when growing cannabis has been common for a long time. Nowadays, though, we know better. We know that most pesticides formulated for food crops have never been tested for use with cannabis. They've been tested to be eaten in tiny doses. They have not been tested to be inhaled and especially not concentrated into a cannabis oil. Chemical residues from pesticides are not healthy for anyone, but they are especially dangerous for patients. For commercial cannabis growers, this has become very impactful. Cannabis enthusiasts and patients have gotten educated enough that they avoid growers who used pesticides. Not only that, but states across the country have begun making pesticide testing mandatory on all licensed cannabis crops. The time has come to find a better way to fight garden pests than covering your cannabis in chemicals. And there is a better way. Let some good bugs fight your bad bugs. Beneficial insects and predatory mites have come a long way since we were buying ladybugs online and putting them in the grow room and just hoping for the best. Natural enemies biocontrol can help you solve pest issues without using chemicals. Natural enemies founder Shane Young learned best practices from working in the ornamental plant industry and has fine-tuned those strategies specifically for large cannabis crops. Shane works with commercial cannabis clients across the country to ensure that they keep their crops safe and pest-free without the use of chemicals. Natural Enemies has proven solutions for spider mites, aphids, thrips, russet mites, broad mites, shore flies, white fly, and others too. You can rely on Natural Enemies for expertise and excellent service. For more information, go to shapingfire.com forward slash natural enemies or simply click on their banner in this week's newsletter. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is AC Braddock, CEO of Eden Labs. So right before the break, um, you were talking about the difference between um, super and subcritical and that some folks were were switching to subcritical so that they could uh, get more flavor profile because, you know, the future of cannabis is not just THC. It's whole plant, it's flavor, it's taste, and it's healing. And and a lot of folks are not familiar with the difference between super and subcritical. All I really know about it is that um, people wanted to try to avoid using subcritical simply because the run took so much longer and it was less number of runs that they could do in a 24-hour period. But will you kind of break that out for us, what the difference between super and subcritical extraction is? Yeah. So um, the wonderful thing about CO2, um, unlike a lot of other different kinds of solvents, is that it's very tunable where you can run um, a material through it at a wide array of temperatures and pressures to, to get out all kinds of different products. Um, where it's primarily useful on uh, cannabis is, is to be able to separate out the terpene profile 
Um, and that, as I was saying earlier, that's a that's a low pressure, low temperature um, profile. It's under 1100 psi and as and at low temperature. So, um, and that's also, as I said to you, how the market's changing a bit. I mean, any kind of quality product that you make, I don't care what it is, takes longer. Um, you know, wines, cheeses, I mean, the list goes on. Anything um, that's artisan. Yes, anything that's artisan. And that's what we want this market to be. We want it to be artisan. We want it to be small business. We want it to be a, um, a micro business as, as opposed to a macro. And there's certainly room for macro, but um, the more small to medium-sized businesses we have in cannabis or anything is beneficial. Um, so the subcritical will pull lots of terpenes, but you also need to then go up to supercritical to pull a lot of the other cannabinoids and the THC because THC can sometimes be hard to pull out, especially, you know, THCA, um, which is another product which is up, coming up and that people are, don't have a really clear understanding about is having a product um, with THCA in it. Um, so especially for medical patients, because you're going to get all the pain benefits without um, all the psychoactive parts um, in there. So, there's a, there's a wide range of temperature and pressure to be able to create um, a recipe that's unique to your product and pulling out different cannabinoid profiles at different places in the extraction process, which gives you IP, which is extremely important um, for this industry, especially when you start, start going back and forth between, you know, pharmaceutical versus nutraceutical or pharmaceutical versus you know a cottage market yeah yeah um this is how we're going to be able to have some traction so as as these markets get larger i would think that the sales of eden lab extractors to particular locales in the country or heck even the world is a is a leading indicator of the next really relevant cannabis scene uh, do you find that to be the case and if so where do you think are going to be the the next hot spots because that's where you're shipping obviously california <laughs> for sure <laughs> it's going to be a huge market <laughs> Um, East Coast, there are several states that look like they're going to be, um, you know, Pennsylvania, you know, with their, their laws only only doing concentrates, which I don't necessarily agree with. I think that there's a, a medical benefit for um, flour as well. But the technology going forward to be able to separate out molecules to pull out CB, um, CBG, for instance, um, which is one of my favorites um, because it's great for uh, pain and inflammation. Um, but moving all that forward, so we're, we have a we have a distributorship now actually as a company in Israel, and um, tapping into some of those European markets like Israel, Australia. Um, there are several different, you know, Germany. Um, the UK is gearing up quickly, I think. Uh, Canada. Uh, South America, it's, uh, you know, it's it's kind of disturbing to see because I feel like Washington and the West Coast should be kind of leading uh, this technology, but because of our federal regulations, other places in the world are gaining traction, which is fine. I mean, 
lots of clinical trials are going on all over the world. It would just be nice to have him be here. Yeah. <laughs> It was it was so disappointing to live in Washington and have us be, you know, one of the firsts. And then because of this, you know, dual layer of our federal laws and then the the confusion on implementation at the state level, uh, I feel like we're in Washington, the, the, the example of how not to do it. And, and, and as soon as the U.S. government stopped international pressure for cannabis, it is amazing how quickly it broke out everywhere as soon as we stopped strong arming people into not using cannabis medicine. Yep. Yeah, it was uh, some of the things that Washington have done is, has been very, very disappointing and, and, and heart-wrenching for many people that I know, especially people who were in medical previously and have moved into the 502 market. Um, but it's uh, especially with how medical has been handled here in the state, um, which is incredibly hypocritical. Yeah, it's a shame that, uh, you know, the patients were the first ones and the medical providers were the first ones to provide them. And of course, they're the ones who are left holding the bag in our in the new system here. But um, heck, we could do a whole show just on Washington's yes. failures. So <laughs> so let's move right along. So I know you and I are both, um, you know, serious whole plant advocates. And um, and I don't know the answer to this question, and so I figure Beth's time is to, now to ask you. So so what is lost during a CO two extraction? And I think that from what I'm understanding from your answer, sub is going to provide more of the original plant. So what's 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 in the plant um, that you would get when you toke it or, or you know combust it that's not in the oil that comes after it's derived by a CO two extraction? You know, I, I can't say that I exactly know the answer to that question. Mm. Um, obviously, different methodologies will leave different things behind. That's obvious. Um, the difference between smoking and CO2, I, I don't know. I, I personally, I, I do know that sometimes when I smoke, I can become very achy, um, depending on what strain it is. But that never happens when I ingest. So there's not only what the difference in the extraction method, but also what happens physiologically um, with how this, the plant works in your body. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, while, while I'm asking you things that uh, that you don't have ready uh, answers to, how about this one? Um, so, uh, you know, when I've spoken to medical doctors about dabbing, some think that we will eventually find out that dabbers are inhaling terpenes in a volume and in a method that it can be toxic to humans. And obviously, these studies have not been done yet because we would know about them. But, you know, you are sure around a lot of folks studying oils, thinking about oils, developing the technology. So what are your personal thoughts on the safety of dabbing? Well, yeah, and that has that is becoming quite a concern. Is, uh, and, well, another new trend that uh, we're hearing about is that um, a lot of BHO um, products, there a lot of people who are, who are dabbing are now taking a BHO product and taking terpenes from a CO2 extraction and putting that on the, the BHO mm. um, product. So obviously you're going to have a pretty significant terpene profile that, there and terpenes are, are light hydrocarbons. So, you know, and, and going back to the, a whole plant philosophy, if 
you've got a plant and it never has more than, you know, let's say 20% terpene profile, and you're mixing it together to create a 75% terpene profile, I, I would say that there should be room for concern there because it doesn't naturally occur that way. And it probably not doesn't naturally occur that way for a reason. Yeah, that makes sense. You're, you're like supercharging it and your body may has, have never seen anything like it before and know how to deal with it. Yeah. If at some point it could become poisonous or, you know, it just, it's just too much. Um, and, and, and so I think we, you know, continually need to look at the plant as it is and what it offers. I mean, that is why this industry exists. Um, so to suddenly take a, a sharp turn, um, has to be thought should be thought through and considered carefully. Yeah, I think this is a fun question. I think that I need to go find myself a, a really good mm-hmm. uh, uh, medical doctor, respiratory nerd, and get him on the show and and ping. I him have one way. for you. Oh, good, excellent. I will ask you about that as soon as we're done here. <laughs> <laughs> excellent. So I, I want to finish this show with a real um, uh, uh, serious, well, not real serious, but a, a really directed business question because we've talked on this show before about um, uh, uh, trademark and license and the importance of companies to uh, continually defend their their brand marks and their trademarks because if if they're not constantly defending the use of their of their product names and of their marks that over time their trademark gets uh, diluted and and it's, it becomes indefensible and and you know I have seen a lot of different extraction machines and and so many of them look like your original machines. So my question for you is that, <laughs> you know, I'm assuming that you're being copied again and again by other extraction companies seeking to catch up with Eden's lead. Do you find that you have to strongly defend your design patents? Oh, yeah, of course. Um, but, you know, it's it's a little difficult, too, with CO2 because CO2 was invented in World War II. Um and so it's not a, a new process by any stretch, but obviously some of the different tweaks and um, how we put a system together um, is certainly um, patentable. But yes, there are many in the last two years, I would say there's a dozen more um, extraction companies who have come into the market and um, to be able to hang on to your market share while you're educating the public on um, what the differences in the systems are, because some of these systems that come in, um, you know, without naming names, you know, one company that I, 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 I know of, their 100 liter takes 64 hours to do an extraction, you know, or hours would take, you know, seven to 12. So it's, it's really detrimental to the operators and the businesses who who get these systems who don't understand the differences because they're going to fail and they can't they can't have that kind of overhead and have that kind of length of time um in an extraction process but it goes back to the whole extraction piece on every level in this industry with as many companies that are popping up doing building extraction technologies, are you to the point yet that you have have got dedicated people on staff who whose job it is to defend your patents and to look for infringement, or is it just your engineers occasionally come across one and then you hand it over to the lawyers? 
we primarily just let our, our legal um, team deal with that. Um, you know, I guess as a business owner, at, at some point you have to make a decision. And are you going to spend a lot of your time looking at your um, competitors and trying to compete? Or are you going to focus on what you do best? And, you know, we, we did make that decision a few years ago that we are going to do what we've always done. And that's just do R&D and look at the science and continue to make better extraction systems because that takes a tremendous amount of time and energy. And to sit there constantly chasing other people um, is a distraction. From a from an idealist point of view, I actually really love that answer because, um, you know, I understand the importance of defending design patents as as a as you know the importance of of, of holding on to IP for a business. But I'm also in the old school uh, idea of information yearns to be free, and and I also like mm-hmm. you know rapid proto testing and and evolving. So uh, I find it encouraging that 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 you are leading Eden in a way that you're all like, well, we'll defend when we have to but let's just make the next thing and then we'll just always be ahead of the crowd i i i uh, I, I appreciate that approach <laughs> you know yeah it's like i i don't i don't care that eden's the biggest company i just want us to be the best company that's what it all comes down to because if we're the best our clients will be successful and they'll be able to then become pillars of mission and in this industry that will hopefully continue the tipping point in the direction this culture wants it to go. And that that's what it's all about. Well said. Well, AC, I know you have got an exceptionally busy schedule. I really appreciate you peeling off an hour to spend with us so that we can uh, get caught up. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Shango. Thanks for all you do as well. Thank you. AC Braddock is CEO of Eden Labs. You can find out more at EdenLabs.com. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at ShapingFire.com and on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I'll be speaking, you can check out shangolose.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose. <laughs>